Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and my first guest this morning is Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West. Now, we've heard a lot about election interference by China at the federal level in our country, but the POCO mayor is here to tell you this morning it's been happening at the local level too. Brad West, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, Brad, you've been very critical of the Communist Party regime in China, very outspoken about China's treatment of of Canada's two Michaels, for example, when they were taken hostage by China. And it appears that China's state apparatus did not like it one bit. So let's let's talk about what happened here. When when did you first become aware that you were on the China state radar here? It was shortly after the UBCM, which is the Union of BC Municipalities conference in the fall of 2019. Uh, I had been elected mayor in the fall of 2018 for my first term. And the following year, all the mayors and city councillors from across the province come together for a convention. And that convention became very notable for the protest that I led against uh, the UBCM having an arrangement with the government of China where the government of China actually paid to sponsor that conference. And in exchange for that cash, we're given access to mayors and city councillors across this province in a private reception where they could work to build a relationship. The public exposure of that arrangement with the UBCM uh, caused them a great deal of consternation Uh, It embarrassed them uh, and it upset them and that it had put me on their radar uh, as someone who was not afraid to stand up and uh, call out their actions in our country. And so uh, that was sort of the beginning of my becoming aware that there were officials within the Chinese Communist Party, uh, you know, that would look for opportunities uh, to try and uh, neutralize what they saw as a threat. Uh, in the form of me. Well, that's incredible. So tell me a little bit about how you were notified by CSIS. For, for people who have never had a phone call from CSIS before, how does how does that work? What, do they just call your office and say, hey, we got something we want to tell you? How did that go down? Well, it certainly came as a surprise to me. Yeah. Uh, you know, working class kid growing up in Port Coquitlam, you don't really think that that's an interaction you're going to have. Yeah. Uh, but uh, one day I, uh, I received a a phone call um, to my cell phone, um, and uh, and it was from an individual who identified themselves as a, as a CSIS uh, agent, a representative, um, and uh, they said that they would like to speak to me. Uh, you know, I immediately put two and two together about what it was going to you know be regarding. This was part of a a, a larger effort. Uh, by the Chinese Communist Party to uh, expand their influence in Canadian affairs. And the fact that it had come to an end uh, because of the action I took, and that was one of the, the outcomes, um, you know, if you t- cast your mind back to that period of time, you know, it, I, I was on your show a number of times talking about it. Uh, you know, I, uh, it was national news. 
And the end result was the UBCM uh, ended its relationship with the Chinese government. They no longer would take their money and they no longer would provide access to people who are supposed to be serving the citizens of this country, our elected mayors and councillors. And because that, that relationship ended, it had caused uh, the Chinese government officials a, a great deal of embarrassment. Um, and, and so um, I was advised that you know, this was something that was very serious to them, that they were very upset about, uh, and it meant that they would be keeping close tabs uh, on me moving forward. And of course, since that time, I've continued to speak out. Right. Yeah, you've been a very prominent critic of China, to say the least. Now, it didn't end there. Speaking to Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam, so you get this briefing from CSIS. Now, in in the course of your, uh, I think, very brave uh, criticism of the Chinese state state interference here, you, I know, became... You made a you made a lot of acquaintances in the Chinese community, the Chinese diaspora community in Vancouver. So tell me what you found out, because if we if we flash forward now to the last municipal election back in in last fall in 2022, tell me what you found out here. Right. Well, certainly as I became uh, very vocal in my opposition to what the government of China has done, you're right. I've made relationships with. Um, people who are part of the Chinese community, the Hong Kong community, the Taiwanese community, the Uyghur community, the list goes on. Uh, People who are, in fact, um, the the biggest victims of the Chinese Communist Party's regime. Uh, And over the years, as I continued to speak out, uh, the contacts and relationships I made would share with me um, comments and messages that were posted to WeChat, which is a, uh, a Chinese uh, social media network uh, that would try and uh, mischaracterize my comments as being racist towards Chinese people um, and would you know, try and characterize me as you know, a, a lapdog of the United States. This is some, a tactic that they use quite often and, and have with many individuals who they see as a threat. And so they would share with me over the years as I would appear on your show and others, uh, this mischaracterization. Um, So in the fall of 2022, I'm re-elected mayor of Port Coquitlam by acclamation. Nobody runs against me. uh, And it was shortly thereafter that I was provided copies of WeChat um, messages from individuals who are associated with the Chinese government in which they were seeking in the August and September months before the municipal election, a candidate to run against me for mayor, someone who they could quote, get behind and try and uh, take me out as mayor. Uh, And so that information was provided to me and I know has been provided to the authorities as well. Wow. Okay. Well, Obviously, it did not work out as as they planned. You won the election, as as you mentioned, by acclamation. No one ran against you. Um, how did you? What was your reaction when you saw that? What did you think? Did that surprise you at all, or what was your thoughts on it? You know, in many respects, I, I wasn't surprised because this is right out of their playbook. And I was advised by by CSIS um, and others who are very familiar uh, with their tactics that 
because they see me as a threat and because their primary concern would be that maybe one day I'm no longer the mayor of Port Coquitlam, maybe I would seek higher office, that that would represent uh, a real threat to their objectives and their aims. And that one of the things that they try to do is to neutralize those threats before they become bigger. On the flip side of the coin, where they have a relationship and they think they have someone who's friendly or sympathetic, they'll try and elevate that person. And so I wasn't surprised because it comes right out of their playbook and they've tried it uh, on a number of different fronts. Um, but the reality is that they failed. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm incredibly proud of my community of Port Coquitlam. I'm, I'm grateful and honored by the support that people in this community have given me. And uh, I'm going to continue to speak out. I hear from people right across this country who think that we need to take this seriously. There, there really has not been, you know, a, a darn thing that has been done to counter and curb this foreign inter interference that has been well documented. And I think Canadians, regardless of their political stripe, regardless of where they live, they want us to take this seriously. Yeah what's at stake is is so important and foundational to our country and our democracy and i start and end with a simple belief that the people who are elected have a responsibility and a duty to serve the citizens of their community in this country and nobody else and that's what we're fighting for and i think more and more canadians are aware of this uh, and I do think the government of China is on its heels when it comes to this foreign interference, and we just need to keep pushing forward. Well, speaking of pushing forward, and this is my final question to you, here you were presented with this evidence, this is like direct evidence of political interference in our municipal elections, or at least an attempt to interfere. What is this being investigated? Like, is is CSIS aware of this now? Is is CSIS investigating? Like, what is the status of that? So, my understanding is that CSIS is aware of it. Um, they don't comment on their whether they're investigating or not. I know that the evidence that was shared with me has all been provided to the appropriate authorities, and I hope they are investigating it. Because alongside a number of other examples, it shows that the government of China has an agenda and is very active at every level to try and undermine our democracy and, our, and the trust and confidence that our people need to have in their elected officials. And they're trying to grow their influence. And so I know they're aware of it. I, I, I believe, I hope that they're taking it seriously and investigating it. I mean, CSIS has been sounding the alarm about this. It's just that we haven't had any action from government, from the people whose job it is to counter this. Um, you know, that's the part that needs to happen. I know CSIS is doing their job. Um, I know this has been provided to them. Um, I know they won't, con you know, they, they don't confirm or deny things, um, but it's very much in line with the other things that have been revealed over the last year or so, Mike. Right. Okay. Well, these are these are certainly among the latest amazing revelations on this file for sure. Brad West, thank you for sharing that with me today and with our listeners. I appreciate it a lot, and it's a story we'll continue to follow. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, Mike.
Right, we're just working to connect with Kenny Chu there, the former conservative MP. Uh, it's really interesting because he says something very similar happened to him. He's, of course, the former Steveston Richmond East MP who lost his seat in the federal election in 2021. And he has told some very similar stories uh, to the one that you just heard from Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam. That was a fascinating interview to me. You heard the Poco mayor there describe how one day he got a call on his cell phone from CSIS, who told him a very interesting story. Let's check in now with Kenny Chu, the former conservative MP in Richmond. Kenny, thanks a lot for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for doing it. And we just heard from Brad West, the Port Coquitlam mayor, tell his story about the briefing he received from CSIS, some of the evidence he was presented with on state meddling by the Chinese state apparatus in the in British Columbia in uh, the municipal level here in B.C. Tell me uh, what your thoughts on that, because I know you say the same thing happened to you, right? Well, um, CSIS did not provide me with any briefing or or you know, any other Canadian government officials for that matter. Uh, however, this is uh, nothing of surprising based on my observation over the couple of decades in the greater Vancouver area. And in fact, this is this is why I, uh, this is one of the main reasons why I proposed the, um, the foreign interference registry, because I see that there, there has been a lot of uh, corruption that is happening uh, because of the um, foreign interference, uh, be it from you know the People's Republic uh, Communist China or from the Iranian regimes and other um, predatorial uh, regimes that uh, I see in Lower Mainland. Okay, we heard from Brad West talk about WeChat, the, the very popular mm-hmm. social media platform in the Chinese community, and he said there was a lot of kind of misinformation and attacks spread about him on WeChat that he thought was a, a coordinated effort against him that he believes could trace right back to Chinese Communist Party officials. Uh, do, you, do you believe the same thing happened to you? Like, you saw a lot of that chatter on WeChat against you too, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean... That's what I observed, but also other um, non-government agencies as well as CSIS uh, that in in various reports they have confirmed the uh, the observation, and in fact they have more information than I do now. Um, Canadians need to understand that unlike uh, those of us who are in the free world, we have a smorgasbord of um, choices in terms of messaging and also social media. If you if you are mainland Chinese living in in China, uh, you don't have that choice. There have been Uyghur Muslims that have been put in re-education centers uh, because they have WhatsApp uh, installed on their phone. That's just not allowed. And therefore, if you are overseas Chinese from mainland China, if you want to maintain a certain level of um, connection with your uh, relatives and families in, in mainland China, the only way you can get hold of them is through WeChat. But they also receive information from WeChat. Now that they are in the free world, unfortunately, because of various limitations, they, they continue to rely on WeChat. So whatever information uh, spread within this uh, Chinese communist-controlled uh, social media, multi-platform, uh, they become 
a good way of influencing their minds, their information, and spreading disinformation. Okay, this is a story, obviously, we continue to follow very closely going forward. Thank you, Kenny, for your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Bye. All right, let's talk about no-fault auto insurance in British Columbia now. It has been the law of the land here in B.C. for a couple of years now, and the B.C. government says no-fault auto insurance is cheaper auto insurance, basically because it, it cuts the personal injury lawyers out of the equation. In the vast majority of cases... You are no longer allowed to hire a lawyer, go to court, and sue for benefits, for pain and suffering caused in a car crash. Instead, you receive what the province has called an enhanced care model of benefits. This kicks in automatically after a crash, and it pays for things like lost wages if you are off work, and medical care, and physical therapy to help you recover from an accident, get you back to work. That's the way it's supposed to work, right? Have a listen to David Eby here. This is the BC Premier announcing no-fault auto insurance. Let's listen. This bill enables changes that will deliver lower insurance rates for BC drivers, saving people an average of 20% or about $400 on their vehicle insurance. These changes will introduce dramatically improved care and recovery benefits should someone become injured in an automobile crash, providing them with up to at least $7.5 million in care and recovery benefits for as long as they need it. And wage loss coverage as well that is 60% higher than it is today. This bill will eliminate the need for British Columbians to hire a lawyer to get the care they require to get back to living their lives as they did before their crash. Okay, you heard him describe there up to 75 million dollars in benefits if you're injured in a crash that obviously sounds awesome right so maybe this no fault thing is a good idea but what how does it work in reality though like if you are seriously injured in a crash how is this no fault auto insurance system working out well let's talk to someone who's been uh, living through it right now fedor oreshkov and i'm very pleased to welcome fedor to the show fedor thank you for coming on Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Okay, Fedor, tell me your story here, because you were injured. Uh, you are on your motorcycle, right? Tell me what happened. Yeah, yeah. well, basically, I, um, I was cut off by a careless driver doing a U-turn. Um, uh, I ended up <clears throat> having a compound fracture in my femur uh, right. about, for about seven months. Um, that's basically the fast pace of the events. Uh, that time was a lot slower going, going, uh, living it. When did that, when uh, did this happen? When did the crash happen? Uh, it was January 28th, uh, last year. January last year. Okay. So you're riding your, your motorcycle. And did you say that, did you say that someone made a, a dangerous turn in front of you? And then what happened? You, you hit a truck? Yeah. Yeah. It was a Ford F-350, uh, flatbed truck. Okay. And he was parked on the shoulder on the right side of the road. And then without any notification or anything, he just uh, did a full U-turn, like at full speed, like no turn signal, basically wheel spinning. And halfway through the turn, he notices me and he hits his brakes. Oh. So I locked off my brakes. I slid into him. I blacked out for about a minute. 
uh, when I came to it, it was just, just laying there with a broken leg. Oh, um, man. I have CPR training, so I kind of self-assessed myself right away. And thankfully, you know, there was no spinal injuries. But uh, still pretty scary situation. Yeah, no, that's how, that, sounds, that sounds brutal for sure. So when you say that this truck did a, a U-turn, so is that an illegal, an illegal turn then that he did? Yeah. Yeah, okay. it was completely illegal. Okay, um, so, was, so, there's no, uh, so there's no doubt it was this other guy's fault. It was his fault. Yeah, yeah, 100% okay. his fault. Okay, so let's talk about your injuries here, Fedor. So you mentioned you had a broken leg. Yes, I broke my right uh, femur. It was a compound fracture. Um, basically, my uh, leg, uh, my bone came out of the leg. Oh. It was pretty, pretty gruesome. Oh, um, man. I had, a miracul- I had a miraculous recovery. I'm 28 years old. And um, I just stayed on top of rehabilitation and my exercises. Yep. But, um, you know, in, in no thanks to ICBC, um, the, the treatment that I had received, I basically had to fight for. And at this point, they, they've basically told me that I'm uh, cured and, and they no longer will be paying for my treatments. Um, you know, in my eyes, this is a lifelong thing. It's not just a year you recovered back to work and, and good job. There, there should be more benefits mm. to, to the recovery. Okay, okay, let's talk about your recovery journey here. Like you mentioned, that sounds like obviously a, a gruesome injury you, you suffered there. So did you have to have surgery? Yes, they uh, gave me surgery uh, the next day. Mm-hmm. Uh, they uh, basically inserted a rod through my leg at the drill hole down the hole. Uh, femur and then pound in a, a titanium rod and then the rod is secured with two screws at the bottom by my knee and at the top of by my hip that are drilled through the femur through the metal rod uh yeah and those that's all permanent nothing's coming out obviously yeah and what has and okay let's talk a little bit about the therapy you've gone through like you've mentioned that you've made a good recovery there like that must have been a difficult yeah. journey there what was that like yeah, so uh, basically the day after the in, the accident, the surgeon came into my room and said, I could bear weight on my leg. She said that, you know, scientifically or whatever, I could stand on it. Mm-hmm. Um, whether I could do it mentally or, you know, the pain that I would go through doing it, they didn't really seem to care about that. But, um, yeah, basically it's like a peg leg, honestly. And <laughs> I've had uh, a previous injury. And after suffering that injury, I had told myself that in the future, if I had an injury, I'd be proactive and try to be on top of the recovery for my own sake. Yeah. And I did exactly that. And I'm blessed to say I'm, I'm basically recovered to my previous uh, capabilities. Is just now I have pain. And uh, obviously, like, uh, it's harder to stretch and everything. Yeah. Um, and also... Uh, exercising has now become basically a full-time routine in my life. Whereas before I did it, you know, maybe once in a while for fun. Uh, now I'm basically every day I'm training. And if I don't keep up some exercises or routines, uh, it, the pain starts to get worse. Speaking to Fedor Arushkov, we're talking about the, the accident he suffered in, when he was on his motorcycle, his recovery from injury. Okay, let's talk about ICBC. Let's talk about no-fault auto insurance Fedor and how this has worked out for you. So how, like, what was it like at first dealing with ICBC? You know, was it, 
were you disappointed from the very start, or did it, did it seem okay at the beginning? Like, tell me how it how, how it all went down. I was uh, I was unaware of what they were doing in the beginning, and they it all seemed very pleasant. They called to make sure I was alive and asked me what injuries I suffered. Yeah. Um, I moved from Alberta about three years ago, so this whole insurance is absolutely ridiculous to me. Um, they were talking about cheaper costs. I actually pay more uh, for insurance in BC than I did in Alberta by about 20%. <laughs> wow. And uh, like you were talking about those numbers, the 7.5 million. Um, the other thing he said in that speech was for as long as they require. And that is absolutely not the case. They're, the adjusters, I've had three adjusters come through. And the last one that stayed is basically taking over two jobs uh, to deal with me. Um, how, lo- how long were you off work? I was off work for seven months. And did, and did, uh, they, pay, did they pay you your full salary while you were off work? They pay up to 90%. Okay. So uh, my employer paid 70%. They have a short-term disability program. Yeah. And then ICBC had to cover another twenty percent or whatever to uh, uh, to cover ninety percent. But were, in were reality, you... yeah. In reality, I work a lot of overtime, and we have bonuses for doing certain jobs. Uh, so ninety percent of my wage would realistically be more like sixty percent. Because they didn't, they didn't pay you for they didn't pay you for the overtime you used to receive. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. They they don't have any way to calculate it. They don't even ask you about it. Um, okay, what about your yeah, therapy costs? Like, you know, because I know you have to go through some grueling therapy yeah. to recover from an injury like that. Did they pay for that? Yeah, basically, uh, one of the things was they in no way like try to reach out to you and tell you about these services. They basically hide in their little office and wait for you to call and ask them if you could have this covered. But uh, basically, they, they would uh, per- cover about, I think, 90% of the costs of um, massage, uh, physio, uh, acupuncture, and uh, physiotherapy. <clears throat> but, th- but now, did you say they've cut you off now? So, yeah, they, they, because I've recovered and I'm, you know, like back to my uh, old mobility, I would say. Yeah. Um, they're happy and they're like, yeah, we can close this claim. So, but you, yeah, don't think that, you don't think that's fair? I don't think it's the right way of going about this. Uh, they, they, they recently. I have so much to say about this. I'm sorry for rambling. Uh, okay. They have recently extended their minimum appointment time to 45 minutes, which increased the out-of-pocket cost for me by about thirty dollars. So I have I, I've spent you know a lot of money on this out-of-pocket just so I can go do these things, and that's I was saying I did this just out of. Uh, just to be proactive and recover better. If, if I didn't have enough money to go do this, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use those services. You know what I mean? How much do you figure and, you've paid? How much do you figure you've paid yourself out of your own pocket? In the last uh, year, probably two grand. Okay. Everything. Um, there's some of their services like uh, Cairo is fully covered of massages and end up paying like 20, 30 bucks on top of it. Yeah. So, um, do you still do you yeah. re- still recover uh, require therapy and treatment now? Yeah, I just I do exercises at home. I basically okay. do, have taken upon myself to do this. 
the the physiotherapists and all of that, it's a it's a forty five minute appointment. What can they honestly do once a week? Forty five minutes. They expect you to cure, get cured from a broken leg. I have to do exercises every day. I have to do stretches every day. In, okay, in bo- bottom eyes, line. Bottom line is you're not happy with ICBC, right? You don't feel that oh, you were. I'm outraged, and it's it's actually been mentally so frustrating dealing with them that that's why I've I've basically stopped dealing with them at all because it's easier for me instead of nickel and diming and telling them that my leg still hurts every time and then being like, oh no, you, you're fine. It's just like, you know what I mean? I'd rather, I think in the perfect, perfect scenario, they just give you a bunch of money and I would personally hire like a personal trainer to come over every day and motivate me and, and help me exercise, you know, not just like a half hour appointment once a week and then good luck, sir. <laughs> so you, you believe that you should have had been able to have the right to hire a lawyer and go to court and sue for pain and suffering then, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, the, the, the wage loss benefits were in no way covered. Like I said, I, I basically went back into my into like ten grand of debt through the last year. Um, if I, I actually have really affordable rent. If I was like some of the less uh, lucky people in Vancouver who pay up to $2,000 for rent, I would have once again been on the street. If I didn't have support from my family, I would have been on the street for sure. Okay, Fedora, thank you for coming on and telling your story today. I'm sorry you've gone through this uh, painful experience. I'm, I'm glad to hear you've uh, recovered a lot, and I appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much. Okay, I can talk about Christian Freeland's speeding ticket here, and we'll talk about lead foot drivers, speed demons on our roads. Have you ever received a speeding ticket? I have to admit, I did get a speeding ticket what, many, many years ago now. This happened to me in uh, Washington State. I was stopped by a state trooper on the I-5, and I'll tell you what, they don't cut you much slack down there. I'll tell you that story in a minute here. Get set to call me on this. Uh, have you ever received a, a speeding ticket? Do you think people generally drive too fast? Are the penalties against speeding adequate to get people to slow down? I've got Grant Gottkatrew standing by to discuss. But first, let's talk about the famous speeding ticket revealed this week. Canada's finance minister, Christia Freeland, uh, she got a speeding ticket last week in Alberta. She was doing 132 clicks an hour. She got a $273 fine uh, for speeding. Also some penalty points on her record as well. She was driving a rental car in Alberta, and she was asked about this yesterday. Now, it's interesting. The This was revealed online, and she's asked yesterday, was she concerned that the information about her speeding ticket was leaked to the media? Here's what she had to say. I'm wondering what your reaction is to the leak about your speeding ticket, uh, and do you have concerns about the fact that that was leaked publicly? Um, so, look, um, I did get a speeding ticket driving between Grand Prairie and Peace River. I was driving too fast, um, and I won't do it again. And that's it. That's all she had to say about it. That she won't do it again. She was driving too fast. Let's check in with Grant Gottkatru now. Grant is a former traffic police officer. He's now a forensic consultant on traffic violations. ForensicTrafficPro.com. Hey, Grant, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, as always, Mike. 
Okay, I appreciate it a lot. So let's talk about Christy Freeland's driving uh, speeding ticket here now. So 132 clicks an hour. I've read that the speed limit was one, was it 110 there? I've seen some counter, I've seen some contradicting information about the speed limit is there, but she was going 132 in a 110 zone. That's what I heard. What do you think of that speed? Yeah, I've heard conflicting reports on what both the speed limit and her alleged speed was, uh, whether it's 130 something or 140 something, that's still, uh, you know, outrageous as far as I'm concerned. And of course, the leak you know, wouldn't have come. I mean, unless she blurted it out to somebody in her office and someone knew about it, the yeah. leak is going to most likely would have come from um, someone within the issuing agency. Yes. Yes, maybe someone who wanted to cause her a little bit of embarrassment. Okay, 132 clicks an hour. That's at least one report is what she was driving. $273 fine. What, what do you think of that fine, 273 bucks? Well, it's certainly higher than the uh, the two lowest fines we have for speeding. Uh, normally, if you're doing 21, between 21 and 40K over on the highway here, you're going to only get a $196 fine. Um, but my concern with how fast she was going, allegedly, of course, you got to say allegedly, um, was that um, she claims not to own a car. And I don't know how long she hasn't owned a car, but that would lead one to believe that she doesn't drive a lot so going at that speed if you're uh if you haven't driven in a long time going at that speed is really really unsafe if you're unfamiliar with it so there's there's two trains of thought here either she drives a lot more than what she's claiming or she was just really careless with her driving if she has doesn't own a car and doesn't drive i mean i think that's the implication when someone says i don't own a car the implication is i don't drive yeah, she has kind of boasted about that, that she does not own a car. Now, as a federal cabinet minister, though, she also has a professional driver who drives her around usually. In this particular occasion in Alberta, she was driving a, a rental car, and she said in the clip you just heard, she admitted she was driving too fast and she won't do it again. The ticket here also comes with four demerit points on her license. Uh are those typically transferable? Like if you if you get caught speeding in Alberta and you live in BC and you get four points in Alberta, do those transfer over to not BC? Every, well, not every province has a reciprocal agreement with other provinces regarding transferring of of penalty points. Um, when I was on the when I was on the job, Washington State did with British Columbia, and I do believe Alberta did. I don't know the rest when it comes to the rest of the provinces across Canada. I mean, let's take a look at driving while prohibited. If you're prohibited from driving under the Motor Vehicle Act in British Columbia, that doesn't prohibit you from driving in Alberta or Manitoba or Saskatchewan because that's just a provincial statute that you're prohibited under. If you're prohibited criminal code, that's Canada-wide. Right, and in British Columbia, if you get four penalty points on your record, you do face an annual driver penalty point premium. So this can cost you some money as well. Let's talk only about... If you, only if you have a car insured in your name. The penalty point... Well, right, yeah. Really, at the end of the day, if you don't own a car and you rack up a whole bunch of penalty points, yes, you can lose your license if you get too many, but if you have five 
points on your driver's license or even six, you're unlikely to lose your license unless you're a new driver. And if you're someone who doesn't insure a car, well, the premiums associated with five or six points are going to have zero effect on you. Okay, well, that's a really good point because Krista Freeland here uh, says she does, does not own a car. So presumably that would that would apply in that case. So let's talk a little bit about speeding generally here, Grant. And I'll, I'll quickly tell this story, my own story here. So I was driving in Washington State. Um, this is going back many, many years. I was in the old family minivan. I was, I was going too fast. I was on the I-5, and a state trooper pulled me over, and I was ticketed for, for speeding. Now, I remember um, when I got home to B.C., I thought to myself, I wonder if I could just ignore this ticket. I mean, what are they going to do? I mean, it's, it's another country. Are they going to track me down? Well, guess what? Yeah, they do track you down. I remember I got a, a very seriously worded letter from a collection agency on our own side of the border here in B.C. saying, you better pay up or we're coming to get you here. And uh, you might even have some trouble getting across the border if you don't pay up. So, yeah, I, I, quickly, uh, I quickly paid up that, that, that fine. They don't fool around down there in Washington State, right? No, they're, uh, the, the Washington State troopers, who, of course, police all the major highways down in Washington State, are, are pretty tenacious. They tagged me a couple of years ago on my motorcycle, and uh, you know, I paid the fine because I knew, well, I'm not going to mess around because you know, if I, you know, I was speeding, and we all speed. I mean, people that say they don't speed, well, okay, you know, that's another discussion. But, um, yeah, they don't mess around down there. They're, uh, they're pretty strict. And their tolerance is really low compared to British Columbia, too. Like, we're talking, um, I got pulled over uh, another time and just got a warning for it down there. It was seven miles an hour over the speed limit on a highway. So wow. that's, about, well, that's about, what, 11 kilometers an hour? So certainly a lot lower tolerance than what we're used to here in British Columbia. Yeah, for sure. Do you think the the fines bring it back home to BC here for a minute? When you take a look at the schedule of penalties for speeding in British Columbia, do you think the fines and penalties are are adequate to deter speeding, or do you think those fines should be higher? There's nothing that's going to deter speeding at the end of the day, and that's just what it boils down to. The oldest case law in the books when it comes to uh, driving offenses uh, are speeding tickets. The first ticket that was ever written was for speeding. So... um, uh, so at the end of the day, they can raise the fines all they want. But I mean, when I started on the job, the speeding ticket was $75. There was no such thing as excessive speeding. And that was back in the late 80s. And, of course, the fines have gone up quite a bit since then. And But speeding is still prevalent. And, and there's multiple reasons for that. The cars are faster than they were 40 years ago. And their cars are perceived as safer of course with mm-hmm. you know 90 95 airbags in it and everything else and so people get this false sense of um security about their safety if they get into a collision of course mazda has that great commercial for zoom zoom you know everything implies go fast go fast go fast and of course we're in a we're in a culture now where everything is fast 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 we gotta go we gotta go we gotta go so i don't think the fines and at the end of the day this is the other thing you gotta look at too right Um, When they started raising the fines for cell phone tickets, all that did was increase disputes in traffic court. Mm. So do the same thing, right? So it's like, yeah, raise the fines as high as you want. It's just going to end up slowing down the court system. It'll cripple it. Okay. 
Grant Gottkatru is my guest. We got lots of phone calls here on speeding. Let's get right at it here. Peter in Surrey. Hi, Peter. Go ahead. Hey, like good morning. Good morning, guys. I think the problem is not speeding. So I drive approximately sixty-five to seventy thousand kilometers a year. That's a lot. And I drive average one twenty to one thirty on the freeway, eighty in the city. I'm a road star gold member for I don't know twenty-seven stars or something. I have no no accidents, clean driving record. I get my I just got my fine last year. I last week I got like four hundred fifty dollar penalty points again. I get you know two tickets a year or something. It's the people that drive at ninety kilometers in the left lane, the people, the semis that are in the left lane, the people that don't turn probably. That's who we've got to educate. Somebody doing one hundred and fifteen on the freeway does not cause the accidents. It's the people that are in the left lane or don't know how to turn properly, or don't know how to drive in the city. Those are the guys we got to worry about, not speeders. Okay. And that's the problem. It's a total. It's the wrong way to approach things. Speeders don't cause any accidents. If people that don't know how to drive mm. properly, that's the okay. problem. Okay, Peter. Thank you for that. Well, I'm not sure about speeders not causing any accidents. Grant, your thoughts. Oh, well, speed will always be the number one killer when it comes to uh, traffic collisions, uh, and that's just uh, the nature of the beast. But, of course, uh, there are a lot of artificially low speed limits or speed limits that kind of leave you scratching your head. When I was at Ursu uh, doing traffic enforcement throughout the lower mainland, there were a lot of areas where I went, why is this so low? I mean, look at Highway 1 through Burnaby and Coquitlam, right? How many lanes is that each way? Four? It's like eight lanes, right? And it's 90K. And then when you get up to Fraser Valley, where it's only two lanes each direction, it's 100K. I don't understand the, the, the logic. The government needs to relook at some of their speed limits because that's contributing as well. Because, of course, if you're in a 60 zone, like on the Golden Ears Bridge, everyone else is doing 90. Okay, let's go to Steve on the line in Richmond. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. Hey, how's it going? Uh, yeah, I was in Calgary. I was picking up my brother from the airport, and I guess they had a van parked on the side of the road. And uh, I guess about two weeks later, I get a, a letter in the mail saying that I was speeding at the airport uh, by about oh. 10K. And the best part is, is they spelt my last name wrong oh. on the ticket. So okay. how does that work? First of all, does it, is it, can it affect my ICBC? And number two, the fact that they spelt, they got the last name wrong. They spelt it wrong. They mixed up all the letters in the, in the name. Okay, I've, I've heard that before. Grant, do you know, because I've heard people say, well, if they get one letter wrong in your name, then you're off the hook. Is that true? Well, it all depends. I had, uh, I spelled the fellow's name wrong on a speeding ticket. We went to court. He said the name was spelled wrong, and the judge said, how do you want it spelled on your conviction? You can amend it. <laughs> and, that's, and that's a true story, by the way. That's exactly what the traffic judge said. So those are some technicalities that may or may not be successful. They're not generally successful um, because they go by your driver's license number um, on these uh, uh, cash cow photo radar tickets. You go by your uh, driver's license number and your license plate. So generally, even if okay. they have the wrong address, it's not going to really matter. Yeah, that's what I've heard too. Rick and Burnaby. Hi, Rick. Go ahead. Yeah, hi, Mike. Um, yeah, I've had a few tickets. I beat one by actually, um, I was working shift work and uh, contract work. And the date of the ticket when I got the letter, I'm like, I'm working way too much right now to attend and fight this ticket. So I, I bought the ticket and I end up speaking with the Justice of the Peace who rescheduled it, and I said it's not a uh, charter. I'm not going past the two-year to, to get a charter. Just need more time. And by the time it came to court, 
the constable didn't even show up, and so I, I basically won the uh, the disposition. Mm. But I will say one last thing. I agree with one of your callers about the speed. I think people fast, 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 as the constable said there, but people sitting in the left lane that's a 90 zone doing 70 or 80 while they're playing on their phone, it, it makes people want to get around them, and that's, I think, the better education right. on staying in the, the middle lane or the, the far right lane. Um, we don't have enough passing lane signs like they do in the U.S. That's my bit. Thank you. Th- thank you, Rick, for the call. I, I heard someone tell me once that you should always plead not guilty to a ticket just in case the police officer doesn't show up in court. But then I was also told that that usually doesn't work. The, the police officer usually does show up in court. Let's sque- squeeze in one more. Alex and Poco. Alex, go ahead. you got 30 seconds here. All right. Uh, I spent a career driving the I-5 corridor from Blaine down to Seattle and a little bit beyond. And, you know, I was told... I'm 60, and I told another kid, my dad said, you drive that stretch, you set your cruise control. And I've, I've never been bothered, and I, I know, I heard, especially with D.C. drivers, the state yep. troopers, for some reason, love the D.C. drivers. <laughs> yeah, they uh, yeah, they got me down there, for, for sure. Those state troopers don't fool around. Grant, thank you for coming on today. As always, my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.